Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today Amy Watson, who's an assistant professor of marketing at Oregon State University Cascades. She's also a TED Talk fellow, and she received her PhD in marketing from the Walton College back in 2011. And she taught all kinds of things while she was here, from business statistics to consumer behavior to integrated marketing communications. But someone sent me a TED Talk that she did. It was about this concept of symbiotic consumption, which I'd never heard of before. And I thought it was so relevant uh, to a number of things that I was exposed to. Uh, so, Amy, thank you for taking time to visit with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be back at Walton, thrilled to be back in Fayetteville. So, Amy, what led you to do this TED Talk? Well, actually, the, the seed of the concept was started at my time here at the University of Arkansas in my dissertation. Um, this is out of the research that I did. I started collecting the data and formulating the idea all the way back in 2009. So it took a full 10 years before this idea really led to what you referred to as a concept you'd never heard of, and that's because it took me 10 years to create it, oh. <laughs> of symbiotic consumption. And it was really born out of, honestly, my life journey and personal experiences. I grew up in a very rural, conservative, uneducated community. Um, my family, personally, was uneducated, and so I'm the first college graduate. And so just really going through the, the tensions of religious and political differences in communities that I was deeply involved in, still very deeply involved with my family and friends from back home, but also, you know, the academic community and the research enterprise and colleagues, much more liberal portions of the state or have much more progressive ideas. And so really figuring out how I personally was able to manage and learn from and grow from those differences. I really thought, you know, I'm, I know I'm not the only person who's faced this. I know I'm not the only person who has experienced this. And so how can I turn this idea and this research that I've been working on for 10 years into something that will hopefully give people some ideas and tools for how to manage difference a little bit more productively so you are a first-generation college student. I am. But you didn't just get a degree. You got a PhD. You got an undergrad, master's, and PhD. And now you're a professor, and you teach and you do research. So you went from one extreme to the other. I really did. And I can say it was because of the impact of one of my undergraduate professors, Dr. Steve Parker. And it is in no way you know, that my parents didn't love me or want the best for me. They most certainly did. It simply wasn't in their field of experience to be able to help me navigate a wider array of opportunities or options than what they had personally experienced. So I was very fortunate that I received a scholarship, and that's the only reason I was able to go 
to my undergraduate program. And then once I got there, I had a professor who pulled me aside after class one day and asked me, what are you planning on doing once you graduate? And honestly, nobody had really asked me and forced me to give an answer as to what I was going to do. And so this professor, they didn't just ask me, they said, you have potential, I'm willing to help you navigate the variety of options that are available to you. And I followed up on that and they were true to their word and they spent the entire rest of my undergraduate time mentoring me through the different you know, career decisions and choices. And it was actually ultimately them who encouraged me to go and seek graduate degrees. Whenever I was in high school, I really wasn't even planning on going and getting my undergraduate degree. So to then be applying to PhD programs, I was really naive and I had no idea really what I was doing, but it was the mentors in my life who really helped me with that process. And that led me then to the University of Arkansas, where then Dr. Jeff Murray became one of my life-changing mentors as well and helped me through the PhD program. Um, so yeah, being a first-generation college student, there are obviously a lot of unknowns and a lot of times you feel like maybe you don't belong and like it isn't the place for you, even though it most definitely is. And so now as a professor, I make it my life mission to be a Dr. Parker or a Dr. Murray to somebody else. Didn't you grow up in one of the poorest counties in Missouri? I did grow up in a very poor county. We had the highest percentage of free and reduced lunches. Um, I myself, you know, was on free um, and reduced lunch programs. Uh, we also had the highest rate of teen pregnancies. Um, at one point, my junior year, three of the four um, homecoming queen candidates were pregnant. <laughs> also at that time, meth was just becoming part of the conversation and was really beginning to take a foothold. But again, my parents, to their credit, while they personally hadn't gone through those, they knew what I was capable of. And so they always, they challenged me not to settle for the status quo of maybe what was around me, to be my best and not to base what my best was based on what was around me. What was your dissertation topic here? Yeah, so my dissertation was fashion and interaction. So that's what started this whole thing, looking at symbiotic consumption, was how do consumers use the things that are available in the marketplace to influence their interactions with one another? So I was really interested in some of my experiences. How do, you know, the type of home that we choose to buy and live in, in the part of town, because that was one of the big things I remember, a decision early on after I had had a little bit of success and I um, had a little, I had more financial resources and I was faced with this decision of buying my first house. And I wanted to fit in with my coworkers and my colleagues but I didn't want to live in a house or a place that would make my friends and family uncomfortable. Um, you know, so really kind of balancing that, how do I have something as large and as visible as a house that is welcoming to a wide variety of people that are in my life that I interact with? And that's really is where this whole notion of symbiotic consumption really came from. 
So what is a way you can explain symbiotic consumption for someone like me that doesn't understand it? Yeah, <clears throat> so symbiotic consumption is the purposeful display of items that seek to increase interactivity between people who maybe have a, a really wide variety of differences. So a really good example coming from my dissertation work that was done here at, um, in Walton was I had some of my students that I interviewed, I interviewed high school students, and they were really big into labelless products. They wanted labelless clothing. Um, they wanted, they even tried like labelless deodorant, which then they said they did not recommend. <laughs> so if you get nothing else out of this podcast, supposedly don't go with a generic deodorant. It doesn't work as well. And I mean, these are 17 year olds telling me that used to, whenever they were in middle school, they were really into, you know, Element clothing or Abercrombie and Fitch clothing. And then as they got into high school, they wanted to fit in with a wider variety of people. They didn't want to just be known as the indie musician group, or they didn't want to be known as the skaters, and they didn't want to be known as whatever. And so in order to promote them being able to kind of seamlessly move in and out of a wider variety of groups, they purposely chose clothing that didn't pigeonhole them, if you will, in a particular group. They didn't want to look like the skaters. They wanted to be able to get along with the skaters, but they also wanted to be able to get along with the speech and debate kids. So that is what symbiotic consumption is, is purposefully choosing products that allow you to move more seamlessly between a wider variety of groups of people. Interesting. So we have a increasingly polarized political environment in the United States right now. Does this kind of concept help think through how to get more civility and uh, ways to overcome differences? Yes, that is my, my hope for this. Obviously, I don't want this concept just to be something that marketers exploit, right, to sell more products to a wider variety of people. My ultimate goal is that we learn and take from examples in nature. So um, the example of the cleaner grass and how that is a prey who has a symbiotic relationship with predators, much larger predators like moray eels and sharks, um, in order for them to both benefit in ways that are key to their survival. And I really think that that parallel exists between people with different ideologies in our culture today where we are so divided we aren't going to be able to continue to progress economically and culturally as a society if we remain so divided. I think that we need to be discussing and debating the issues. We need to be debating guns, gun rights, abortion, immigration. You really need to focus on the issue rather than the person that you're discussing the issue with. And so it requires more work on your part um, to be symbiotic. You have to be better informed about the topics of which you're discussing. You have to go into those conversations actually having done the research on the facts and the history of the topic that you're discussing rather than just letting it dissolve into 
oh, well, who can throw out the biggest insult and that be the nature of winning an argument? When you um, look at your future research, are you going to continue to build on this? And what are some things you're going to be looking at? Absolutely going to be building on this. What I really want to dive into next is what is the driving force and the motivation behind people who do not want to be symbiotic? So the troll mentality and those who really their goal is to incite and their goal is to create more division. I really want to understand why that is. The research that I've done up to this point, most people don't like the way that that division feels, but we see that activity taking kind of the forefront. It's more sensational, so we see it covered in the news and by the media. Um, we obviously see that taking place in the larger national political field. And so I want to understand the behavior that isn't symbiotic <laughs> so that I can do a better job of communicating how to remain symbiotic even in those extremely difficult situations. So Amy, when you look at uh, the kind of research you've done in marketing, it shows you how complex marketing topics really are. A lot of people wouldn't even know this was a marketing topic, but it clearly is. Right. I know your focus in this isn't necessarily how to sell more products, but how could the symbiotic consumption concept help a company from a marketing perspective? Right. Um, absolutely. Well, we have seen this with some symbols. So Pepe the Frog uh, was the symbol created by like a political cartoonist and it wound up being adopted by basically white supremacist groups and then eventually being added to the hate symbol registry. So marketers have to understand the cultural narrative around their brands and around their products. And doing so for the majority of people who don't want to be labeled in one of the extreme camps, um, then it's really important that we understand as brands um, how our, the symbolism of our brand is being used by consumers and how it is being either adopted or even kind of juxtaposed or um, perverted even um, in the marketplace. Once something becomes such a ubiquitous part of the culture and the culture feels like they own that brand, then the marketers kind of you know, struggle to have control, to maintain control over that. So I think that's the kind of the biggest way. Well, you know, um people pay influencers to use their product. There may be a particular product that a company pays someone to show that, maybe not to say, well, I drink this product, but to show them drinking it. Right, absolutely. Yeah, the, influence, the influencer marketing is huge, and I think it's a big, a big part of this, right? Because you have to be really careful whenever you're choosing those. Is that person accepted by our target audience? Is that person seen as an aspirant in, by our target audience? Or is it seen as somebody that we absolutely despise and don't want to be like, right? Um, the Kardashians are so polarizing. There are people who absolutely cannot stand the, pol you know, the, 
the Kardashians and everything that they mean and stand for. Yet you can't deny the financial and cultural power that they have been able to use. And so understanding what it means to align your brand with something like a Kardashian <laughs> or something like a Kanye West, and especially now, like we're seeing this transformation in somebody like Conway, Kanye West, who's now holding Sunday services and his last album that just dropped. Um, you know, I mean, has Jesus in the title and he's backed by a gospel choir. Um, so that's the problem and the opportunity for brands are oftentimes, I mean, not oftentimes, every time you partner with an influencer, they're a human and humans right. change. Well, even if they aren't intending to, you know, if, if I have a, if a company has a particular brand of a drink and say an extremist of some sort, a militant extremist of some sort on all of their YouTube channels drinks this product. Yep. It couldn't, it could be a matter of time before it's associated with this. Yep, that is exactly and right. And other militant extremists in that category might start consuming it. And then the brand can't really do much to combat that, can they? No, and that's what you're saying. At a point, the brand kind of loses control, which is obviously really scary. And if you look at the... Um, like the weight of information sources whenever consumers are in their decision-making process, brand-controlled information sources are the least impactful, right? Word of mouth is more impactful. Public sources, which are gonna be things like YouTubers um, or social media influencers, they have more weight than the elements of a brand that the brand can actually control. And so that becomes the tension. And that's why understanding a concept like symbiotic consumption and the interfacing between cultural values and branding, why that's so important for brands um, and for marketers to stay on top of those and to constantly be doing market analysis and research of those. So they have an understanding of how and where their brand is being adopted and by whom. Amy, this is such an important topic. Thank you so much for taking time to, to share with us. I really appreciate it. Of course. And we're proud I'm... to have you as an alum. Oh, thank you. I, I wear uh, my Razorback gear very proudly. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C podcast. And now, Be Epic.